Hey, Unnaturalists, I'm Emily. I'm Andy. And welcome back to Unnatural. Good to be back. Not not in person, Emily, but uh, that doesn't matter. Not in person this time. That's okay because we still have fun. And we still have murder. We do. We have two murders today because in January of 2001, two beloved and very well-respected professors at Dartmouth University got a knock on their door when the husband, Hulf Zantop, opened the door. He saw a couple of unassuming teenagers in front of him who said they were students conducting a survey. Inviting the boys into his home would prove to be a fatal mistake. This is the story of Suzanne and Hulf Zantop. when they were both students at Stanford University back in the 60s. Now, I think this is kind of funny because they both were German-born, and I looked up, like, the cities where they were from, and they weren't very far away from each other. Mm-hmm. So, like, as they were growing up, but they never met each other, but they both ended up at the same college. Oh, fate. I know, it was. I couldn't find a whole lot of information about like their childhood or like their lives growing up, but Suzanne was born on August 12, 1945, and according to one source, her parents were brickworks entrepreneurs. I'm not exactly sure what that is, but it sounds cool. Yeah. And she began her studies in Berlin for political science and then went on to earn her bachelor's in comparative literature from the University of Massachusetts in Amherst in 79. And then in 84, she earned her PhD in comparative literature at Harvard. And then I think she was just doing some additional studies or something at Stanford. But climbing up the ladder, she was climbing up the ladder. Um, she turned her focus to study German and Spanish literature around this time. She was internationally acclaimed for her specialization in 18th and 19th century literature, colonial history, and cultural politics. She began teaching at Dartmouth in 1996 and remained there until her death. She won several awards for books and journals and essays she wrote and participated in in German studies. She was super involved in the community around Dartmouth. She was the chair of the Department of German Studies. She was a co-chair for a women's studies program, and she also acted as an advisor on a bunch of committees. So in other words, you're saying she didn't do a whole lot and she had a lot of free time. Exactly. And um, she was described as a, quote, warm individual whose intensity and intellectual rigor was inspiring. So the exact opposite of specious. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, she was really involved in like progressive politics, social justice, women's rights, etc. Um, her husband Half was born January twenty fourth, nineteen thirty eight, also in Germany. Wow! And um, if you think about it, World War Two was just about to begin when he was born. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, he earned his bachelor's degree from a university in Germany before moving on and studying genealogy, where he eventually went and earned his PhD in 1969. He taught earth sciences and specialized in economic geology. Um, he was also very loved and very respected among his students. Um, they described him as entertaining and engaging. He, he and his wife both spoke fluent German, English, Spanish, and French. Wow. Yeah. I can't even uh, speak pig Latin properly. Come on. I can speak pig Latin. I am learning ASL. Hey, that's cool. Hulf was also involved in committees and advisory programs. Um, they were both very hardworking people. They were incredibly in love. They um, went on a vacation to Argentina, I believe, in 1969. Ooh. And then just a couple months later, they were married in 1970. They had two daughters together. And about a year before they were murdered, they had begun to discuss their retirement plans. Um, because at the time, Suzanne was 55 and Hulf was 62. So they were mm -hmm. getting to be that age, but they also strike me as the type of people who would be teaching well into their 70s. Yeah, just because they loved it. Yeah, they absolutely loved it. They loved their students. They were just... Great, great people all around. Now, enter in two teenagers, James Parker, 16, and Robert Tollick, 17. I couldn't find a whole lot of background on these boys either. Um, I found a handful of things, but Andy, would you like to take a guess on what they were like as people? Um, I'm guessing they were maybe, uh, petty criminals, um, and kind of jerks who were outsiders. I don't know. That's just my initial thoughts. Um, same. And you are about half right. Okay. So both of them did well in school. They were popular. Hmm. They had girlfriends. They had good families, as far as I could tell. They were involved in sports. They had a lot of friends. Um, they were really just kind of your all-American boys. Robert was the um, president of the student council in his class. Wow. Um, James was described by some of his friends as just being like kind of the class clown and really goofy, but also really well-liked. So I found that really interesting. Yeah, surprising. I, yeah, I, like you, thought they would have been, um, you know, troublemakers, maybe had a history of abuse in their families. But really, like, as far as I could tell, they, like, none of that was going on in their families. Like, they had good home lives. Didn't have trench coats. Didn't have trench coats. Um, but apparently they did think they were smarter than everyone else. 
So they, their hometown was a tiny town called Chelsea in Vermont. Um, there was about like 1200 people, I think in the town. And the boys claimed that they were just bored. Like they wanted some excitement in your, in their lives. But, um, for most people being bored, doesn't mean let's plot a murder. No, I would have just, uh, eaten some maple syrup. They've got a lot of that in Vermont. Yeah, or like literally anything else (laughs) besides murder. Right. Literally anything else. I'm bored. Let's kill someone. Yeah. Well, I guess they wanted to become Navy SEALs, but they didn't want to go through the training program and they didn't really want to live within the bounds of the law. Um, They had dreams of potentially being hired assassins. So like mercenaries decided, or something or wow yeah, crazy yeah so they kind of decided they were going to train themselves to be killers and just kind of gallivant around the world being hired assassins i don't know i mean i don't know not my dream but whatever floats your boat i guess i mean action movies are fun sounds like they watched cool. a lot of them Yeah, right? Because, I mean, like, that's what you see in some action movies like Hired Hitman. Especially, what year was this? This is 2000. Okay, yeah. Lots of action movies around that time. Yeah. So, they kind of started devising this plan that they wanted to go to Australia and that's where they wanted to start their like murder for hire careers, I guess. Um, but they figured to get there and to kind of have like, I don't know, their. They needed something on their resume. The I didn't write it down. They needed some experience, or. No, well, like, well, like to get to get there and to have some money, like as a cushion. They figured they needed about ten grand, right? So they started trying to devise a plan on how they were going to get this money. Now, they tried to do it legitimately at first, but for two teenagers in the early 2000s, money isn't coming in very quickly. So they thought about um, maybe coming up with a plan to rob and murder people. Yeah, bad plan. So they could eventually get to Australia where they would continue to rob and murder wow. people and like hijack boats. So they did order some seriously heavy duty knives online that apparently are knives similar to what a Navy SEAL would use. Hmm. Yeah. Back then you could order anything online. Yeah, for <laughs> real. Well, and according to James, he said, quote, we thought we could just go wherever we wanted and then, you know, become like these really cool people. <laughs> I mean, it does sound like something a teenager would say. Right. Um, they also <laughs> they also were trying to figure out a way to live forever. Like they wanted to find the fountain of youth. They wanted to, you know, kind of explore like Egyptian myths and lore about immortality like fairy tale shit yeah i guess they thought that they could kind of like become a cyborg and replace 
their bodies with machines so they could live forever. They, they like, were probably watching The Matrix at the time or something. <laughs> the Matrix. Terminator like movies. DC comics. DC is Cyborg, right? Yeah. Yeah, Cyborg's DC, yeah. So, I mean, they're just getting all these wacky ideas in their head. I would say they were watching a little bit too much of Black Mirror, but that wasn't around. Yeah, that didn't exist yet. <laughs> so they began small with their search for money. They kind of started by breaking into houses, like easy houses to get into, looking for cash or things that they could sell. They tried to steal a couple cars and like sell them for parts. Um, They started stealing mail out of people's mailboxes, hoping to find like cash or checks or maybe gift cards. I don't really know if gift cards are a thing then, but... um, It's funny. They thought they were smarter than everybody and they sound pretty stupid so far. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, all of those things weren't really working up. out. Yeah. Yeah. So these this pair of dumb shits decided <laughs> that they would. Is that going to be their- the title of the episode? The pair of dumb shits? No. <laughs> and this is actually like called the Dart the Dartmouth murders. Okay. Parentheses pair of dumb shits. Yes. So this pair of dumb shits decided they would try to talk their way into wealthy-looking homes, get ATM cards and PIN numbers from the victims, and then kill them. Jesus. Yeah. And this is where it just it gets really fucked up. And kind of re- keep, keep your mind on some of these details for when we get deeper into the story. Okay. Um, so they tried this several times in several different towns. So what they would do is they would choose a house and walk up to the door and, you know, say something to try and get inside. Now, most mm-hmm. of the time they were turned away or nobody was home. But one particular time that this just gives me chills. So they picked a house and they um they cut the phone line before robert walked up to the door and james kind of like hit around the corner mm-hmm. and the owner of the house did answer the door and robert was like hey man my car broke down can i use your phone to call my mom or like a tow truck or or something and apparently at this particular house now the guy who answered the door had a gun in his hand. Like he had it kind of like hidden away, but it was like pretty. So late. he was prepared. Yeah, he was prepared just in case. Um, but apparently he thought this was really weird because there was a payphone just down the street and a mechanic shop just down the street. So hmm. so they had two other options. So why are they coming to this house? Right. So the guy was like, no, I'm sorry. Like there's the payphone. There's the mechanic shop go down there they'll be able to help you out so he was so like skeeved out by this that he went to go call the cops but when he picked up his phone phone, was dead his phone was dead and he realized he made the right decision turning them away yeah absolutely (gasps) and later the police would realize that these kids also dug shallow graves 
near the in house. Preparation? Oh my God. Yes. But they were ready to do it. They were. And that's and it was just they would just they would just pick a random house. So that's like premeditated attempted murder right there. Literally. Yeah. But they kept failing and I think they're getting a little frustrated because what like they wouldn't like go door to door. They would pick a house, kind of make a plan, and then when they failed, they would just go home. Mm. And then like a, a day or a week or however much longer later, they would go to a different town, different neighborhood, um, whatever, and then pick a different house. But then towards the end of January of 2001, they drive to kind of a bougie neighborhood in Etna, New Hampshire, which is about 45 miles away from their hometown of Chelsea. Hmm. So, you know, this is not, this town is like not very far away from where the Dartmouth campus is located. So Mm -hmm. um, it's like a really upscale neighborhoods, like all around. So... They find a house, they fail, they go home. But it it seemed like they really liked this neighborhood and this town because the houses were big. They seemed like right. a, it was like a really wealthy neighborhood. So a few days later, they go back to Etna on like in a different neighborhood on a different street. They pick a house, knock on the door. No one was home. Now, for some reason on this day, they switched up what they did a little bit. Like I said, I think they were getting frustrated that none of this was working. So So this time they didn't just go home? No, they drove a little farther down the street to try again. And unfortunately, this is where Suzanne and Hulf would become the first victims. to the house. They knock on the door and Hulf answers. Now here, the boys pretended that they were students conducting an environmental survey. Hmm. But let's go back and think about who Hulf is as a person first. Yeah, he's an earth science teacher. Yeah, like I am not entirely convinced that them choosing this house was a complete accident because it seems like way too much of a coincidence. Yeah. Right? They made it, maybe they scouted him out or something. Well, but like during the confession, this is what they said. They would like, they, like they picked a house. It didn't work out. So they're like, well, let's try this house, I guess. Like, let's get another try before we go home. And it just happened to be the house of the one person who would be more than happy to let them in because he was an earth science Mm -hmm. teacher. You want to talk about the environment? He's probably going to be like... Hell yeah, your students. He's a teacher. He was very well known for being super involved with his students. And he probably would have known of some survey like that going on, though. You think? Well, no, because they, I don't think they ever, 
I think they might have just played it off like they were high school students, like working on a project okay. for their science okay. class. I don't think they were like trying to be like like official official survey professional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because I okay, mean they gotcha. were clearly gotcha kids. So anyway, Health leads them inside into his study where they proceed to sit and talk about the survey. And these kids actually had questions prepared about the environment. Like they had a survey. Now, I don't know what questions they asked or really what all transpired here, but it sounds Mm -hmm. like Robert asked a question that Hulf didn't really have a great answer for so you know he's like hey i know someone who can talk to you about this let me get you a phone number so he turns around is like looking for a business card or a phone number or something to give to the boys and it's at this point when robert launches himself at half and begins to stab him in the back the chest and he starts slashing at his face that poor guy yeah, now this this knife, this knife is huge. It's I think um if I'm remembering correctly, it had like at least a 3-inch blade. It's like it's big and it's yeah. sharp, right? So Robert is so frenzied when he's attacking Hulk that he ended up slicing his own leg in the process. Good. Now obviously He's being attacked and he's probably screaming and yelling. And Suzanne hears the commotion from the other room and she comes into the study from the kitchen. She was preparing food because they were supposed to be having a dinner party with their friends that night. And she walks in and Robert sees her and yells at James to slit her throat, which he did. And he stabbed her. Oh, my God. And then Robert quickly cuts Hulf's throat and then comes over and begins to stab Suzanne in her head and Uh. her body. So it's just, it's brutal and it's Yeah, just complete carnage. Yeah. So. Wow. Those poor people. Yeah. And they were just, they just sounded like the sweetest people. Yeah. So both of them are lying on the floor, bleeding out and the boys take Hulf's wallet, which contained $340 in cash, and also his cards and all of that. And then they get in their car and they leave. Wow, killing people. I mean, dying for over $300 is just crazy. Well, and like, remember, their whole plan in the beginning was they were going to get pin numbers. Right. Before they were doing the killing, but they didn't. No. So and and the thing is, they want they want to go to Australia. Well, three hundred some dollars isn't going to fucking get you there, right? So they're on their way back home. They pull off on some kind of like country road. They wash the blood off their hands, off the knives. They cleaned the, all the blood they could out of the car, and they ended up burning the clothes they were wearing and Hulf's wallet with the credit cards inside because they didn't get the pins. So obviously they're useless, but I did see in one source that they may have also burned the cash. So, so like the if they burned the cash, what's the point? Yeah. Wouldn't that negate everything they were doing? 
yeah, the whole the whole thing behind going and killing people was to get cash for their trip to Australia. But anyway, as they're getting all cleaned up, they realize that they had left the sheaths for their knives at the crime scene. Uh-oh. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Yeah. So they get in the car. They go back? They go back. Whoa. Yes. They go back. Just ballsy as a fuck at this point. Uh-huh. And... um. When they get back to the house, police have already arrived because Halts and Susanna's friend, Roxana Verona, had arrived for the dinner party they were supposed to be having. Oh, my God. Yeah, so she like she gets there. She's knocking on the door, and she's like, what's going on? Because like this couple is not the type to forget about a dinner party they Or just blow planned. it off. Yeah. So right. um, Roxana gets into the house. And she walks in and finds both of her friends lying on the floor in pools of their own blood dead. Can you imagine how much she freaked out? Oh, my God. I no, I can't imagine what it would be like to find yeah. that at all. Um, so that happened. She found them around 630 p.m. And, you know, so the boys drive up. They see a bunch of police cars outside, so they just hightail it out of there. Mm-hmm. So now at this point, yeah, they just have to trust and hope that the police don't find the knife sheaths and they didn't leave behind any DNA or anything that could implicate them. But So the cops didn't notice them pulling up and then getting the hell out of there? I don't think, I mean, I don't think they like got right up to the house. I assume they were probably okay. coming down the street, saw the lights, and then- Saw the lights- turned around you know i'm sure plenty of people drove by or like drove halfway down and then kind of backed out of there because people well yeah even as an innocent person sometimes when i see lights i go the other way yeah (laughs) it's just a natural instinct Well, sometimes you want to kind of drive down and see what's going on but like the street is blocked off so you have to turn around or you know kind of whatever um I mean, it's not like they slammed on the brakes and whipped a Yui and like caused a scene getting out of there. Right. They may have, I don't, but I don't think so. Mm-hmm. The cops really didn't release much info to the public right away. And the area and that community were just absolutely grief stricken by the loss of this iconic and amazing couple. But since um, police weren't Releasing a whole lot of information, rumors started flying. As they tend to do. Yeah. I mean, even with a bunch of information released, people people talk and rumors start and oh, God. whatever. Um, kind of right off the bat before they really dug deep into their investigation, the police had speculated that due to the, you know, passionate nature of this crime, because stabbings this brutal tend to be someone you know there's a lot of yeah. emotions involved how many times have we covered that yeah a lot so the police initially ex- uh, suspected that perhaps Hulf or maybe even Susanna were having an affair and one or the other found out and it turned deadly mm, murder suicide yeah murder suicide yeah. maybe the lover 
right? Something like that. But um, they had a tip line set up and dozens and hundreds of tips and theories were pouring out about who killed them and why. Um, allegedly, Half had been heard arguing with a student in the weeks before the murder. So, like I said, rumors are flying and everybody's kind of paranoid because these are two very well-respected people at a very small, tight-knit college community. And they were murdered right. so brutally. So people were kind of, you know, side-eyeing everybody. Yeah. What's that lawn boy doing over there? Yeah. <laughs> or like you're sitting in, you're, you're a student and you're sitting in a class and you're looking around like, did one of these people do it? <laughs> Hopefully you're not saying that out loud. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but the police did find the sheaths for the knives. Of course they did. And they were able to find the type of knife that the sheath belongs to. So they did their due diligence and they started because this is this is like a very particular, uncommon type of right. knife. It's not like the same kind of knife you can get at Walmart or something. Right. Yeah. So the police were able to track um, sales of that type of knife, yada, yada. And they eventually traced two sales back to James Parker. Wow. Now... Keep Way in to mind, narrow it down there. Yeah, I think they just searched in a radius and two. they found the two sheaths and then they found a sale for two of these types of knives. So that really stuck out, you know, mm -hmm. so they wanted to look into this kid or person who purchased these two knives, even though they yeah. were, what did we say, 45, 50 45 miles away? Minutes. Yeah. Um, now, around the same time. The boys had told the they took off. They left. They told their mm. friends that they were going to go to Colorado to go rock climbing. Mm -hmm. But they came back because Robert injured himself, injured his leg falling down. So they couldn't very well go rock climbing in Colorado in the middle of winter when one of them has an injured leg. Right. I don't know much yeah. about rock climbing, but. This is January. I mean, mountain climbing, maybe, but like rock climbing? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so the police come knocking, and the boys did consent to getting fingerprinted. They handed over their shoes, their clothes. They both had alibis for where they were, and the police asked how Robert... Um, injured his leg and he said he slipped on a rock and fell and cut himself on a metal spigot hmm. and um very detailed yeah well when asked about the knives they both said that they were going to build a fort and um they ended up selling are they are they nine years old <laughs> yeah well you know they live in a <laughs> tiny town and they're bored okay. so what else are they going right. to do with their time um, they said they sold the knives at a surplus store because they weren't working for the project and they were really heavy. Both of them had the same story, but police did end up getting search warrants and they found a pair of boots in Robert's home that matched the bloody boot print found at the scene. Uh -oh. And their fingerprints did come back as a match to the ones found at the scene. So now they have a warrant 
out for the arrest. Mm-hmm. But since the cops had already come knocking, guess what the boys did? They took off. They took off. And they took off in James's mom's car, which I believe is the same car they drove when they committed the murders. Mm. And they dumped it at a truck stop in Massachusetts. And then um, at this truck stop, they hopped in a, you know, they were basically hitchhiking. Yeah. And workers at this stop recalled seeing them wearing backpacks backpacks and approaching a bunch of truckers for a ride they were also spotted in new jersey so now there's like a nationwide manhunt manhunt going on for these two kids right and luckily sheriff sergeant william ward heard a trucker say over the radio that he was driving two boys who were looking for a ride to california Mm. so ward hops on the radio um acting like he was another trucker. And he said, hey, I'm headed that way. Drop them off at the fuel desk and I'll come pick them up. Mm. So. Did they take the bait? They did take the bait and they were apprehended in late February, about three weeks after Suzanne and Hulf were killed. And then they were at this, they got picked up in Indiana and they were brought back to Chelsea And they were both charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Now, in December of 2001, James ended up accepting a plea deal. And it seems like he really kind of went back and forth on this, Mm -hmm. on which way it was going to go. And that's why it kind of took so long. Um, because at the same time, Robert's defense is trying to get an insanity defense. For just him or for both of them? For just him. Okay. And I think I think um James's legal team was probably like, look, take like if you go to trial, you're not like you're not. You're you're done. Right. Immediately no. And they're not both gonna be able to get insanity. I mean, come on. Right. So, um, in the deal, it said that James would testify against Robert, plead guilty to second-degree murder as an accomplice to killing Suzanne, but not Hulf. Even though James did admit to slitting her throat, I think they were kind of able to argue that maybe the, like, the several stab wounds following that done by Robert could have been the fatal wound Mm. Mm -hmm. so robert was actually the one that killed her but anyway he would agree to a max sentence of 25 years to life with the possibility of parole after 16 years and any profits from like a book deal or a movie deal would go directly to suzanne and Hulf's daughters Like I said, at first, Robert's defense tried the insanity plea claiming mental illness, but that fell apart rather quickly because there are several circumstances that someone has to or criteria someone has to meet in order to like qualify for that type of defense. And that didn't work. And especially with James's testimony against him, like pretty incriminating right there. Super incriminating. So Robert ended up pleading guilty to first degree murder. Um, at the sentencing hearing, James was 
crying. He was emotional. He apologized for the part he played in these murders. But Robert, on the other hand, was just stone cold. He made no statements. Yeah. And he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Good. Yeah. And then um, in 2019, so they were sentenced in 2002. Mm -hmm. And then in 2019, James had tried to get an early release since he had served more than two-thirds of his sentence. Mm -hmm. But he withdrew that motion and he will remain in prison until um, I believe he will be released in May of 2024. Hmm. And um, and Robert's in fact, there for the rest of his life, right? Robert's in yeah. there for the rest of his life. They are both in the same prison in New oh, Hampshire. I wonder if they run into each other. I wonder if they there's do. any weird moments. Um, as far see, because I I read a little bit about this, and um, they're both kind of in like the, it's like a maximum security prison, but like prisoners have a level, yeah, kind of like how sex offenders do, and like they're. Right. Offender level is a level three, which means like medium security. So they are able to kind of like they're able to be in like the gen general population areas and like mingling around and kind of, you know, go into different areas of the prison without too much security. But it doesn't seem like they like they're not around each other ever except like at mealtimes and they don't interact to each other. Yeah. Yeah, they don't interact with each other, which. I was kind of wondering how that was going to go, especially for James, because I mean, oh, you think Robert would try and shank him or something? Well, maybe that, but like any prisoner, yeah. Because really, he took a plea deal and he ratted out, yeah, his friend. I bet there's a lot of guys with plea deals in there, though. Oh, I'm sure. You know, I don't know. Yeah. That's crazy. Maybe maybe prison is different than jail because you see the jail shows and it's like if you come in there and right. you rat it on somebody, like you're done. Yeah. Immediately, no. Yeah. I don't know. I've never been to prison. I've never been to jail. I've never been arrested. So. James should just walk up to uh, Robert one of those one of these days when they're in the cafeteria and be like, remember when we were like talking about going to Australia and shit? That was stupid. No. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So Well, yeah, okay, that, justice served at least. Justice served. Um as far as I could tell, there's no book or movie deals in the works for either of them. Yeah, because they don't um, wanna because they don't want to split the money with the family or give the money to the family. Yeah. I mean but it seemed like it seemed like out of the two of them, James was really the one who regretted it. Yeah. And you know, earlier in the episode they had all these weird fairy tale fantasies and you know, they were he was sixteen at the time and J or Robert was older. Mm-hmm. So even though like yes, they were old enough to absolutely know what they were right doing. from wrong, mm-hmm. yeah, I think they really did just not really realize or grasp yeah like the the true implications of what it means to kill somebody because in the confession um james really just kind of seems like he didn't he didn't want to do the killing 
like the murdering aspect of it. He was down to rob people and get money, mm-hmm. but I think Robert was really the one that Pushing was like, it. yeah, we're going to, yeah. yeah. But, and then that, you know, that's obviously not to say that James is, is innocent or, or, or anything because he's clearly not. But out of the two of them, I think he was, he was more of the follower. Right. You know what I mean? We see that a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of following, come follow us on the social media pages. You can do that on Twitter, Unnatural the Pod, Instagram, Unnatural the Podcast, our Facebook page, Unnatural, a true crime podcast. You can send us a Gmail, unnaturalthepodcast at gmail.com. Also consider signing up for our Patreon page where you will get early access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, and more. That is patreon.com slash unnaturalthepod. And as always, be sure to rate, subscribe, follow, and share us with your friends. We will talk to you next week when Andy tells us about what? I'm still deciding. I'm deciding between two right now. I feel like we shouldn't even have this segment at the end of our episodes anymore because most of the time, neither of us know what we're going to do true. for the next week. Do you think <laughs> that you're right? You're right. Or yeah, we change it or something happens. We'll find out next week which one it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> In the meantime, make good choices. And don't get got. Bye. Yeah. He he and his wife both spoke fluent German, English, Spanish, and French. Yeah. I can't even uh, speak pig Latin properly. Come on. I can speak pig Latin. I am learning ASL. Hey, that's cool. Yeah. And can you get can it. you give me a sentence in pig Latin? Um Ixne on the ombre. Ude uye on the what Okay, what does that mean? Do you know what you're doing? I don't, actually. <laughs> Same. It's a mood. <laughs> That's mine. Oh, he is so cute right now. Uh-oh. No, that's mine. That's mine. You can't have it. He's pointing at my uh, truly. Oh, yeah. You definitely can't. You, you got another, uh, what, uh, 19 and a half years or so? Mm-hmm.